Hi all, you're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of At The Beam. This is Josh Snow, always with Trudy Wu. So today we're going to touch on some high-yield literature in lung cancer. We call this uh, Clinic Scaries. And yeah, let's get started. So Trudy, you're about to start the thoracic service, and you're in desperate need of a quick high-yield review. Do you want to get started in rapid-firing some studies? <laughs> let's go. So let's review early-stage non-small cell lung cancer first. The story starts like this. In 1995, the first lung SBRT patients were treated in Sweden. And then about 10 years later, in 2003, Dr. Timmerman published the results of a prospective dose escalation trial conducted at Indiana University. Patients were first treated to 24 gray in three fractions and eventually went up to 60 gray in three fractions, which was found to be feasible and effective. So these data really opened the doors to the world of lung SBRT. Josh, what is the seminal cooperative group trial which established a role of lung SBRT as definitive treatment in medically inoperable early stage patients? Yeah, so that's going to be RTOG 0236. And again, this is led by Dr. Timmerman. It's important for several reasons. So one, it was the first prospective multi-institutional study in North America. Two, the patient population consisted exclusively of medically inoperable stage one and stage two disease. Three, All tumors were peripheral, and they received 54 grain three fractions. And then four, there was excellent long-term local control with a five-year local control rates of 93%. So among those patients who developed recurrent disease, the majority of them had some element of distant failure. So this was with or without synchronous local regional failure. Well, so Trudy, I've heard the term no-fly zone thrown around. Can you uh, tell us what that means? <laughs> yeah, the no-fly zone describes a two-centimeter radius around the proximal bronchial tree. Part of the reason why all the tumors in RTOG 0236 were peripheral is because severe toxicity was noted in Dr. Temerin's preceding phase two trial, which included central tumors. About half of the patients had central tumors which were, again, located within two centimeters of the proximal bronchial tree and were treated to 60 to 66 gray in three fractions, developed some form of grade three to five toxicity. So this included four deaths. So patients with central tumors had an 11-fold increased risk of severe SBRT-related toxicity than those with peripheral tumors. So of course, clinicians have been seeking alternative fractionation schema to safely treat central tumors. It's important to remember that radiation-related toxicity can take up to two years to manifest. Josh, let's fast forward in time. What is RTOG 0813? Because the study also looked at central lesions. <laughs> That's right. So RTOG 0813 is sought to find the maximum tolerated dose for tumors that was located within that no-fly zone or immediately adjacent to the mediastinum or the pericardial pleura. So instead of 60 to 66 gray in three fractions, patients on this trial were first treated to 50 gray in five fractions and dose escalated up to 60 gray. In terms of results of 120 patients, Within the first year after treatment, there was a 7% risk of grade three to four toxicity in the highest dose level cohort. So this is the 60 grain five fraction cohort. And this included pneumonitis and pleural effusion. However, those that were treated to 55 grain five fractions didn't experience any dose limiting toxicities. So overall, grade five toxicity was about 7% with most 
deaths occurring greater than a year after treatment from lethal hemoptysis. Now, speaking of grade five toxicity in central tumors, Shruti, what was the Nordic HILAS trial? So in this series, tumors were analyzed as two groups, one near the trachea slash main bronchus, or two near the lobar bronchus. All lesions were less than one centimeter from the proximal bronchial tree and treated to 56 gray and eight fractions. So of the 74 patients enrolled on this trial, 30% suffer from grade three or greater toxicity. This included seven patients who died, and that's almost 10% of patients enrolled on this trial, mostly, again, from lethal hemoptysis. So toxicity was far more common in patients with tumors near the trachea and main bronchus. This data is important because it emphasizes the life-threatening toxicity of SBRT for central lesions, namely near the main bronchus. So if you look at NCCN for central tumors, they recommend a fraction eastern schema, which includes 50 gray and four fractions, 50 to 55 gray and five fractions, or 60 to 70 gray and eight to 10 fractions. So Josh, our TOG 0236 established a role of SBRT for peripheral lesions in inoperable patients. Is there data to support SBRT in patients who are surgical candidates too? As we know, Lobectomy has been the gold standard for early-stage lung cancer for decades. But most recently, two large randomized trials, CalGB Alliance 140503 and a Japanese trial, demonstrate that less extensive resections in the form of a sublobar resection, i.e. wedge or anatomic segmentectomy, result in similar disease-free survival and overall survival in select patients with small peripheral tumors less than 2 centimeters. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So it's uh, an active area of research over the last several decades. And we as a, a field had tried to answer this question in the past, but several randomized controlled trials, specifically STARS and Roselle, had failed to accrue patients and they terminated early. But they did evaluate the patient data that was collected from these two trials in a pooled analysis. It's commonly referred to as the Chang pooled analysis. And this included a total of only 58 patients that were accrued among the two studies, but they did find that recurrence-free survival was similar between the two arms. This is the lobectomy and mediastinal lymph node dissection and SBRT. And notably, there were six surgery patients that had died within the surgery arm, and there was noted better three-year overall survival in the SBRT arm. Now, also grade three or higher toxicity was worse in the surgery arm, with almost half of the patients experienced some sort of grade three or higher toxicity. Now, although that data did have its limitations, this pooled analysis suggests that SBRT appears to be an appropriate option in surgically operable patients with early stage non-small cell lung cancer. In fact, Chang and the authorship group then proceeded to conduct the revised STAR study where the SBRT group was uh, reaccrued and propensity matched to a modern institutional cohort of vatslobectomy and lymph node dissection patients at MD Anderson. There were 80 SBRT patients that were enrolled. These were all new patients that were not included in the prior pooled study, and they were compared to 80 surgery patients. And three-year overall survival was the same at 91% for both groups. So non-inferiority was claimed for this study. Yes, STARS and ROSAL were the phase three randomized control trials that closed early, and we now have the revised STARS study. But there is another single arm phase two study, RTOG 0618, that also looked at the medically operable population. 
peripheral tumors in this study were treated to 54 gray in three fractions. And here, the authors found that of 33 patients, the four-year local regional control was 88%. However, about one in 10 patients did develop distant metastatic disease. So again, in RTOG 0618, we see high rates of local control, uncommonly requiring salvage surgery. While we're on the topic of establishing the place of surgery versus SPRT for early stage lung cancer, there are several studies which are currently open attempting to answer this question again. These are the VA Lung Valor Study, Stable Mates, and RTOG 3502. One additional topic I like to mention is the active area of immune checkpoint inhibitors with SBRT. So the phase two ICAVR trial published in The Lancet this year demonstrated that with the addition of nivolumab to SBRT for early stage lung cancer, there was improved event-free survival, providing further support for the actively accruing phase three trials, which include PAC4, Keno867, and the SWOG NRG S1914, which are asking this very question. Okay, so, so far we discussed that SBRT for lung lesions is the gold standard for medically inoperable populations. And uh, this has been put up to the test against surgery in randomized control studies for medically operable patients with some findings showing that there may be some equivalency between the two procedures. Um, now, when lesions are located within 2CM of the proximal bronchial tree, we consider those to be centrally located and should carefully think about the optimal fractionation in these cases. So let's pivot and talk about single fraction SBRT. So Trudy, what RTOG study looked at this? So that'd be RTOG 0915, which was a randomized phase two study looking at 34 gray in a single fraction versus 48 gray in four fractions to non-operable peripheral early stage lung cancer. The main objective was to evaluate toxicity, and they actually found that grade three or greater toxicity was lower in the single fraction arm compared to the 48 and four arm. Furthermore, local control was similar between the two arms with five-year local failure rates of 11% with 34 gray in one fraction. So this data suggests that single fractional lung SBRT may be appropriate in select patients with peripheral tumors. So moving on, let's talk a little bit about locally advanced lung cancer. Any patient with at least clinical N2, meaning that they have an ipsilateral mediastinal and or subcrinal lymph nodes, which are stations two through nine, T3N1 disease, meaning they have a primary tumor greater than five centimeters, there's invasion, um, multiple nodules in the same lobe, and ipsilateral peribronchial and or ipsilateral hyalur lymph nodes, which are stations 10 through 14, or T4N0 disease are considered to have clinical stage 3 disease. So typically patients with resectable clinical T3 to 4N1 or T4N0 disease are ideal candidates for upfront surgery. So for clinical N2 patients, you may ask, Josh, what was the study that demonstrated that these patients should probably get definitive chemoradiation instead of trimodality treatment? Yeah, true. Some INT0139, they randomized 400 patients with clinical N2 disease to either induction chemoradiotherapy plus surgery or definitive chemoradiotherapy. And patients in the trimodality arm got 45 gray in 25 fractions versus 61 gray in the definitive arm. Now, treatment-related death was higher in the trimodality arm, and there were no significant differences in survival. However, progression-free survival was better in the trimodality arm. Now, key takeaway from the study is that patients who got a lobectomy versus a pneumonectomy had significant improvement in overall survival, suggesting that trimodality may be considered for patients that are anticipated to undergo lobectomy. 
True. However, in the era Pacific, where patients get adjuvant durvalumab after definitive chemoradiation, the five-year overall survival rates are better with definitive chemoradiation plus consolidative immunotherapy versus trimodality therapy with lipectomy. So just something to keep in mind. Okay, so let's talk about why we add concurrent chemo with radiation in the definitive setting. Josh, what's the benefit of adding chemo? Yeah, so chemo with radiotherapy does improve overall survival. There's been numerous studies which compared chemo RT with sequential chemo RT, and the results were summed up nicely in the operant meta-analysis, so which ultimately found that there was a 5% absolute five-year survival benefit with concurrent chemo RT. Now, local regional control was improved, but not distant control, which uh, makes sense since concurrent chemo RT makes the quote-unquote RT work better, but it does not usually mitigate distant metastatic risk. But it's not all peachy, as concurrent chemo RT does increase esophageal toxicity. So Trudy, what kind of chemo do we often give with uh, radiotherapy? So this can be institutional dependent, but we can give carboplatin pemetrexid, cisplatin pemetrexid, carboplatin placotaxel, or cisplatin and etoposide. So now we know to give concurrent chemoradiation if we believe our patient can tolerate increased toxicity, namely esophageal. And this is because concurrent treatment with chemo and radiation improves overall survival. But what about dose escalation? Does going beyond 60 gray improve outcomes when given with chemo? Yeah, so RTOG 0617 first randomized patients to 60 or 74 gray. Uh, this is with concurrent weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel. Now, the second randomization was adjuvant carboplatin paclitaxel plus or minus tetuximab. Not only were there higher grade three or higher esophagitis in the 74 gray arm, fewer patients completed treatment, which was kind of expected, but survival was actually worse. The addition of adjuvant cetuximab only increased toxicity. RTOG 0617 reinforced that 60 gray in 30 fractions should be the standard dose thing. Uh, that was first demonstrated in RTOG 7301. There was a secondary analysis of this trial, and Trudy, what did that look at? A secondary analysis compared the patients treated with IMRT techniques versus 3D conformal, which was pretty evenly split one-to-one. -one. So despite larger planning volumes, IMRT about half severe pneumonitis rates from 8 to 4%. All right, so to round things up, let's talk a little bit about the evolving treatment landscape incorporating immune checkpoint inhibitors. Yes, ladies and gents, we are talking about the Pacific trial. So Josh, what did this very important and modern randomized control trial show? Yeah, so it showed that patients who had stage three disease were treated with definitive chemo RT and then randomized to receive consolidation diverlimab, which is a pdl one inhibitor or placebo. So this is an entire year of saline infusions. So at five years, overall survival remained significantly better for those who received consolidation DERVA, uh, demonstrating that over 40% of patients with stage three non-small cell lung cancer can live to five years with consolidation immune checkpoint inhibitors. Now, all patients were eligible, but those with higher pdl one derived a greater benefit. Awesome. So... Let's talk about one more study, can't stop, won't stop, <laughs> Checkmate 816. Um, this was a surgical study, but important for us to know and understand. So in this large randomized control trial of about 350 patients, um, they were randomized in neoadjuvant Nebo plus a platinum doublet chemo versus platinum doublet chemo alone in resectable lung cancer, which was, again, stage 1B through 3A. And patients who got chemo plus Nebo had better event-free survival and, very importantly, 
a 24% past CR rate compared to 2%, which is kind of crazy. Whoa. So that's a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, great. Thank you, Trudy. Yeah, that, so that rounds up our Lung Scaries episode. We want to thank Dr. Percy Lee at City of Hope for reviewing today's script. You can find the show notes online at atthegame.com. And be well. And remember to always trust, but verify. I said that Yay. wrong. <laughs> be no, well. I... Remember to trust, but always whatever. Remember. <laughs> I think it was fun. <laughs>